you want to turn to page 300, or sorry, 760 in your Bibles, if you're in a pew Bible, and John chapter 11 if you're in your own. We're going to get there in just a second. Back in the 1970s, in Brazil, Juan Joliveira, a beloved elder in the church, went into the hospital for routine surgery. The surgery was to take a couple of hours. He would go home a couple of days later. As it was, he and his wife Maria's 50th anniversary fell on Easter Sunday that year, and he was to come home from the hospital on Good Friday. Their four children and family from many parts of Brazil had come together to celebrate both Easter and the married life of these beloved people. At 8 a.m. on Thursday morning, Juan Zolivete's family were up, ready to go to the hospital to visit him. They would return later and begin preparations for Sunday's huge celebration of both life together for Juan and Maria and also of the risen Lord who made their life together possible. They also needed to prepare the house for Juan's return home as some special accommodations needed to be made following the surgery. Well, the phone rang and it was the hospital. There was little explanation given, but during the night, Juan Joliveta had unexpectedly died. What was to be a wonderful weekend of celebration was now to be a time of great mourning. The family was, of course, stunned. Maria was almost unbelieving. How could this have happened? The surgery was so routine. Two hours later, the hospital called again. Because of the holiday weekend, they needed Maria Joliveta to come down to the hospital on Friday morning, on Good Friday, to sign papers for the release of the body so the hospital could make the transfer of the body before the holiday weekend. So after a day of unbearable grief, Maria and her daughter Sophia made their way on Good Friday down to the hospital when they should have been going to pick Juan up to bring him home. They were instead going to the administrative offices of the hospital to sign release papers for their beloved husband and father. Several documents needed to be signed, and in the course of it, Maria noticed that a mistake had been made in the recording of Juan's birth year. His name was Juan Javier Augustus Joliveta, and that was written right, but the, and the address was right, his birthday was right, but his birth year was wrong. Sophia suggested to her mother that they should make the need to change and return home, but the grieving wife of 50 years suddenly became obstinate. She wanted to see her husband's body. She wanted to see that it was really her, Juan Joliveta, who had died. So Sophia agreed, and the two of them made their way to the fifth floor to Juan Joliveta's room. When they arrived, Sophia, wanting to spare her mother the greatest of griefs, slowly peeked into the doorway and then let out a horrible shriek. Her mother now rushed ahead, looked in through the door, and she too screamed at the top of her lungs. Meanwhile, Juan Javier Augustus Joliveta was sitting up in his hospital room. Having just finished his breakfast, he was reading the newspaper, thinking that he should begin getting ready to be picked up. When suddenly he saw over the top of his paper the face of his daughter Sophia slowly peer around the corner of the doorway and with her eyes as big as saucers she let out a tremendous scream. Then she was gone and his wife of 50 years suddenly stood in the doorway shaking and screaming as if she had seen a ghost and then she was gone. 
All he heard were the echoes of the screams of these two women as they ran down the hallway to find a phone. Their grief had been turned into a great joy, and there was going to be a party! (laughs) And he knew nothing of it. And they thought they knew all of it. And suddenly, the grief that they had experienced for the last couple of days completely transformed. Because a mistake had been made. And it was not that Juan Joliveta who had died. And the birth year was right for the fellow who died. And all the other information was wrong. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Mary and Martha to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But now I know that even God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And after she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she quickly got up and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. And I won't read any more here, but you can bet that there was some shrieking that went on, that there were some screams that took place when Lazarus stood up and walked out of the tomb. And you can bet that there was a party 
when Lazarus came out after being dead for four days. They thought he was dead. They thought he was gone. They thought it was forever, and it wasn't. And that's because Jesus was on the scene, and Jesus has the power over life and death. I can't think of a more compelling story than this one when it comes to talking about life and death, save perhaps for the one about Jesus himself who comes out of the grave. Lazarus was dead for four days. They thought there would be a smell. This is going to stink when we open this door. The fact is that the disciples didn't want to go because they were afraid for the life of Jesus and for their own lives. That's told earlier in the story. The fact is that there's a love relationship between Jesus and Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and they wanted him to be there because he could save them. The fact is, they think that if he had been there, their brother would not have died. The fact is that there are mourners there who also think that Jesus could have kept Lazarus from dying. The fact is, they expect there to be the transition from a live body to a dead one, and that's going to be decomposition and odors and ugh. The fact is that Jesus weeps. The fact is that Jesus prays to the Father and wants God to come and do something. And all of these things make this story live. The disciples think they're walking into a death trap. They're afraid that God will not get them out of this one. And yet God walks beside them. The one who holds life in his hands walks with them to Lazarus' grave. And maybe what I like best about this story is the way it portrays the immediate effects of the power of death that Jesus has. He has power over death. It's possessed only by him. Mary and Martha and Lazarus get to experience this power over death and all that is death-like. They get to experience this advanced resurrection that on the last day we'll all get to experience. And Lazarus gets to experience this quite literally, a new life, because Jesus has the power over death. And so the fact is, is that right now, there is something that happens for you and me. There is a power that Jesus has over death that begins to come into our lives right now. It's not just in the future. We possess this power and have access to it right now. And we know that because of the experiences that we've had in life. Think about this. John Coughlin is sitting back here. And it wasn't that many years ago that John found himself sitting in a jail cell and looking at the wall and thinking to himself, what in the world am I doing here? And then some people in Vancouver who were members of a church decided that they were going to talk to John about Christ. He comes eventually to know the Lord and a transformation takes place and his life is changed. Here and now, resurrection comes into our lives. And John is resurrected from the dead and becomes what God wants him to be. Sitting next to John this morning is Greg Kleinsaucer. 
couple of weeks ago, we celebrated in our life group or mentioned in our life group on Wednesday night that it was Greg's fifth year of sobriety. Praise the Lord for that, Greg. How is it that Greg experiences five years of sobriety? It's only because God has done something in his life. In fact, God has resurrected Gregory from the dead and brought a power into his life and changed him in a way that nothing else could ever have done. Years ago, I've told this story before. Years ago, I had a friend in California, Ed Welsh, who was, from the time he was a young boy until he was a grown adult, was always in the California Youth Authority or an adult prison. He ended up in San Quentin. He was a a gang leader within San Quentin's prison system. He was put in San Quentin because he wanted to be a member of the Hells Angels. And in order to get in, he had to commit an armed robbery. So he planned this armed robbery along with some other guys. In the course of all of that, they were arrested. And he ended up in San Quentin. When he finally gets out, he finds himself living next to Dennis and Karen Baker, who were members of the Church of Christ in Long Beach, where I worked. And Dennis and Karen started talking to Ed and his wife, Allison, about coming to church, which they did. Completely changed their lives. And Ed's life went from constant presence in the penal system in California to being what God wanted him to be. And today, after years of visiting youth, in the California Youth Authority system, Ed is now in charge of all of the volunteers that go into the California youth system and visit those children that are in prison. He is in charge of all of those volunteers for Southern California. Can you imagine how many lives that impacts? And it's because Jesus, even now raises people from the dead. He changes lives. And the power over death is affirmed so strongly when Jesus raises us from the dead even now. Now lives are changed. Now transformation takes place. Criminals become saints. Alcoholics become healers. Walking dead men live and bring life to others. Time and again, figurative, symbolic grave clothes are removed. And new men and women come out of their tombs. They were dead. And they come out alive after living lives of heartbreak and agony and oppression and pain and sin. And when our, when our church feeds a homeless person... A life has changed. At least that's what we hope because God has the power to do that. And when we give money to the poor, when we visit a brother or sister whose legs have been broken, when we support a student in Africa who otherwise could not go to school, we bring the new life of Jesus into these people's lives. Now, And when a sinner, mired in guilt, in brokenness, under the oppressive weight of having chosen so many times the wrong path, is set free by the blood of the Lamb, the newness of life bursts forth, and the power of resurrection over death is experienced again. And it happens here 
It happens now. And then there's the not yet. We are like an expectant couple who's received the news that a new life is on the way, that a child is already here. But there lies in front of us nine months of waiting for one of the ultimate joys of life. And in the meantime, there's excitement, and already things are changing. And so there's a, there's a now, or a present. We know this baby's coming, but there's a not yet when the full expectation is fulfilled. We're like the parents of a five-year-old who can see their young one is becoming something, or she is, he is an inquisitive, learning, fun human being to be around, but one day you will know him or her as an adult. And those of you who are parents, older parents, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Your kids don't stay children. They get older and you get to know them as adults. And then your relationship changes. It changes into something wonderful and deep and interactive in a way that it can't be with a five-year-old. Or we're like those who have just discovered they're going to get an income tax refund. (laughs) It's coming. We begin to plan for what we will buy. Happy to know the refund is all but on the way, but we know that Revenue Canada hasn't quite set the check. Or, boo, we're like the season ticket holders for a hockey team with which I am acquainted, thrilled to finally receive the blessing of entering into a rebuilding phase and knowing that a number one pick and ultimately the playoffs lies somewhere off in the future. But for now, we have to look at his name on the back of a black jersey with a penguin on it. And so there is this not yet sense about us in Jesus Christ. We know that something is still to come. Sometimes today, even Christians, especially the young, want to speak only about things like social justice, the power of Christianity to change the world. Social justice is a wonderful thing for which we work, I love the fact that we minister to the poor and the homeless the way we do. I love the fact that we have a chance to change lives even now. God changed my life. And I'm grateful for that. But is that all there is? Is that all there is, church? No. That works for the young, I suppose. When their lives are full and death seems so far away, I can see why they'd want to talk about ministering to the poor and all the things that we get to do for Christ that will minister to others. I can see all of that. But I am 54 headed for 84. I am not young. I don't think that death is right around the corner for me, but neither is it a lifetime away. And I have now lived long enough that I have seen many people die and leave this life whom I've loved. And resurrection from the dead, the fact is, speaks way loudly to me now than it does to someone who's 24. Have you ever thought about the fact that Lazarus had to die again? Lazarus had to die again. Have you ever wondered what he was thinking as life was drawing to a close? The second time, not only had Lazarus been saved once by Jesus, but then experienced the fact of Jesus' own resurrection. So Lazarus dies, he goes into the tomb, and then comes out of the tomb, and then a short time later, sees Jesus die and go into the tomb, and then come out of the tomb. Can 
you imagine years down the road, Lazarus is now on his deathbed for the second time. And everybody around him, they might be grieving. But come on, do you think he is? He's already gone through this once. He knows what this is all about. He experienced it once in his own life. He saw it in Jesus. And now he's thinking, I get to do this again. That's exciting. To think that God works in his life. There was no fear in his heart the second time around. He had seen and experienced this before. I've told the story before about a friend of mine, Mark Whitty, who was 26 years old when I met him. He moved to Victoria in 1992. Was not a Christian. His parents were Christians. Charlie and Marge. And he came out from Ontario. They still lived back on Manitoulin Island. He came out and didn't know anybody in Victoria, so we got to befriend him. He, his parents sent him down to the church, basically, and said, you know, go down there and meet some of those nice young people at the church. So he did. Got to know him there. A couple of months later, brought his girlfriend out, Cindy. And they'd been living together for a while in Ontario. She comes out, and now Mark and Cindy are living together in Victoria. But he started to develop a relationship with the church while he was there, and, and it was a good one. And after a while, Mark was baptized into Christ, and, and Cindy was baptized into Christ. So on a Friday night, they got some friends together in their house, and I came over for dinner that night, and they were there with their friends for dinner that night. And after dinner, we went into the living room, had coffee or whatever in the, together. And then uh, Mark stood up and said, hey, he said, since we're all here, let's have a wedding. How about Mark or Cindy and I get married? And so we did. And so I married Mark and Cindy in their living room that night. It was just spur of the moment. We performed that ceremony. They were married. Two weeks later, Mark found out that he had multiple sclerosis. And it was not the good kind. And they knew that it wouldn't be long until his body would begin to break down and he would find himself in a wheelchair. In the meantime, Mark decided that he wanted to become the person who took over at church for uh, orchestrating, organizing the servers on Sunday morning. So he did that. Organized everybody. Did that for a couple of years. I can remember how, how sad he was when a mistake would be, make, uh, would be made. Or if he missed something, didn't get the right person in the right spot or whatever. How sad he was when that happened. Because worship for him was so real. I remember how he prayed. How sincere he was when he prayed to God. And Mark, in terms of his illness, you know, never, he never blamed God. He never got angry. He never expressed any kind of harsh words. Never used his, his condition as any kind of excuse. Didn't crave pity. Instead, he was just the best father to his two girls that he could possibly be. The best husband to Cindy that he could possibly be. He typically enjoyed life every day. Laughed at himself. Loved to tell the story about the time that he was, when he was, uh, living in a place because he couldn't care for himself any longer and there were workers there who would take care of him and it was Christmas time and Mark was lying in bed but he had to get up and go to the commode so he gets up and he goes and one of the workers wrapped a blanket around him while he goes to the commode so he's sitting on the commode with 
the blanket around him and the worker leaves the room and goes down the hall. And then as he's down the hall, after a while, he heard some singing. He went back to the room and carolers had come into the hospital because it was Christmas time and they'd gone into Mark's room. And the, the worker goes in and Mark is sitting on the commode with a blanket wrapped around him, big smile on his face as all the carolers are singing around him. <laughs> and he enjoyed telling that story. Well, as his days came to a close, it was a Sunday morning. Mark seemed to have only moments left. Mike, his brother, his sister Donna, Charlie and Marjorie, his parents, were all around him. And they noticed that Mark had a smile on his lips. And Mike, his brother, sensing that something otherworldly was taking place with Mark, in a moment of illumination, said to his brother, Is it beautiful? And Mark suddenly moved. He, he, at this point, he couldn't talk. He couldn't walk. He could barely move. But Mark suddenly moved as if to sit up. And he looked at his brother, laid back down with a smile on his face, and five seconds later, left this life to be with the Lord. Folks, the life that Jesus gives to us is beautiful. And what we will have one day with Christ is glorious. And it began on this day, on Easter Sunday, when Jesus rose from the grave. There are those sitting here this morning who've lost loved ones. And you long to see them. And the hope that we have in Jesus is that you will. And so there is a sense in which every death for those who die in Jesus should be a party. We should be excited about the transition we make. God transforms us now and there is a not yet in which he will transform us again. And we will be with him forever and know the joy that is only in Christ Jesus. Amen. That's the day that we celebrate today, the resurrection of the Christ. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you today that Jesus rose from the dead. We thank you that the power over death is his. And we see it now, God, in the ways in which you transform lives. And we experience life, new life right here, now. But we know there's this time coming for all of us. A hundred percent, we heard today already. And for those of us who die in Christ, there is this wonderful, glorious joy that can be ours in Jesus as we come to you, Lord Jesus, as our Savior. We praise you, God, today for the resurrection from the dead. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.